Phil has written, forgotten how many books, but on a number of very big topics that had large impact on the way people went about studying both cognitive psychology and also international politics. He was a very early pioneer on the ideas of cognitive complexity. And over my career, I've worked with lots of psychologists. There are very few who are able to translate the psychological insights that uh, I think are, are common all across the social psychology into practical political science uh, world, and Phil is one of those. He moved on to a book on good on, on counterfactual reasoning in world politics, uh, where he brought a large group of IR theorists together, who at first I remember, especially Bob told me, he said, what are we doing? This is antithetical to the entire tradition of our theorizing, and yet I think and now people are talking about counterfactual all the time. In the early 80s, Phil started a project that is truly heresy, as we're going to talk about today. He asked a lot of us who were studying the Soviet Union or other parts of the world uh, what we thought was going to happen as a judge, as actual some kind of judgment on whether or not our knowledge had any value. <laughs> and, and had the audacity to keep track uh, most of the IR theorists, and he'll tell you how many, over 20 years to see how often, if ever, they actually had any insight into uh, what was going to happen, uh, given their causal understanding of the past. The Princeton University Press is bringing the book out. I see Amazon already published it on uh, expert political judgment. How do we know City Glitter? No? It's great to have you home. <laughs> I have many fond memories of Ohio State. Uh, I, I, I left under protest. But <laughs> um, well, as, as Rick said, this project's been going on a long time. Uh, by my count, it's 21 years old. And uh, if you think of a project that's being born when, it, when it's finally published as a book, it'll be published on July 7th, I think, which means it's a 21-year gestation period, which is uh, painful. Uh, I, t I tend to um, give different introductions for different audiences, and th there's, there's a way of framing this project that, that works better for political scientists, there's a way of framing this project that works better for psychologists, and since Mershon is a pretty interdisciplinary place, I'm, I'm going to give you both, bo both, both sets of framings and you, you, you can see which one is more or less useful. The one for political scientists is a little bit more autobiographical. Uh, the project got started in 1984 when I was uh, serving uh, on a committee that had just been created by the Carnegie and MacArthur Foundations, National Research Council Committee on American-Soviet Relations. And for those of you who are as old as I am, uh, you know that in 1984, American-Soviet tensions were high. And uh, KAL 07 had been down the previous year, and uh, the, bulletin, the clock on the bulletin, of the, the cover of the bulletin of the atomic scientists was closer to midnight than at any point since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Tensions were high, and, 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 and apocalyptic scenarios were circulating in movies and in books um, of nuclear war. And, and serious scientists were, were, were taking, this, taking these scenarios seriously. And, that, and that's why the National Research Council Committee was created. And I was a very junior member of that committee, and I, um, I, I had to find some kind of a role for myself. And the role that I found was to uh, study experts. On, since I wasn't an expert myself, uh, and I had some training in psychology, why not apply my training in psychology to the study of expert reasoning? 
on American-Soviet relations. And I, I was a reasonably confident young psychologist, and I had the uh, odd idea that you could treat these ideas that the experts had about American-Soviet relations as though they were testable hypotheses. Um, and that, 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 that essentially was the, uh, the way I ventured out. Now, of course, it turned out that, um, that a lot of the early fears, with benefit of hindsight, now appear to have been exaggerated. And that, um, and, it, it, and in, in, in the great series of forecasting tournaments of, uh, that life tends to offer, this is, the one, this is one of those situations where the liberals come off a little bit more defensive than the conservatives do. Although, actually, from a logical point of view, it's not clear that anybody won in, uh, this, this, particular, uh, this particular forecasting tournament. Um, the liberals were, of course, arguing that if the Reagan policies continued, uh, that uh, relations with the Soviet Union would continue to deteriorate. Uh, they, 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 they invoked scenarios of hardliners gaining more influence under conditions of threat, and um, there, were, there were various conflict spiral types of arguments that were circulating, uh, re-Stalinization. Uh, Rick, Rick knows all this much better than I, since he was, he was, one, of the, he was one of the experts back then. Um, although he, he did not participate, he was not, he was not a subject in this study, I, 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 <laughs> I, 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 I hasten to add. There, there, are, there are no fingers being pointed here. Um, but the liberal scenarios tended to be a bit on the, on, the, on the gloomy side, and the conservative scenarios tended to be not nearly as upbeat as they claimed that they were later on. I mean, they, they claimed later on that they were you know, purposefully upping the ante on the Soviets, and they, 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 they were you know, rationally guessing that the Soviets would crumble under the pressure. Uh, in fact, the conservatives were very well positioned to explain the opposite outcome, which would have been re-Stalinization. Uh, the conservatives were, were, there were many leading conservative commentators on the Soviet Union in the early 80s or late 70s uh, were in print arguing that the Soviet system was, uh, uh, it was an essentialist image of the Soviet Union. It was infallibly self-reproducing totalitarian entity. And it, would, it was very unrealistic to suppose that any leader dug up from the bowels of that system, like Gorbachev or someone like that, would, would, would begin uh, transforming it in a major way. So insofar as the opposite outcome occurred, the conservatives were pretty well positioned to explain that. And of course, the liberals who were expecting the Reagan policies to, lead, to bring us precariously clo close to the apocalypse, they were, they were in a pretty good position also uh, to argue that, well, it, Reagan, it happened uh, either despite Reagan or it was, Reagan was irrelevant. Uh, these were internal processes going on within the Soviet polity, within Soviet society. The Soviet leadership had decided they just couldn't go on living like this anymore, to paraphrase one uh, famous conversation that apparently went on along the Kremlin walls. And uh, that's, so what, what, what do you have here? What you have is what psychologists who study judgment decision-making call an outcome-irrelevant learning situation. Uh, you have a situation where no matter what happens, everybody's reasonably well prepared to explain uh, what happened. Even though ex ante, they had somewhat different expectations, ex post, everybody quickly re-equilibrates to the reality and can, 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 can cover it within their preferred set of general, causal generalizations. Now, any resemblance you see between that situation in the early 1980s and the situation in the early 21st century in debates over the Bush Doctrine in the Middle East are, are not purely coincidental. <laughs> I, I, I think we're, we're probably in an outcome-irrelevant learning situation in the Middle East as well. Uh, although that would be a conversation that would take us, take, take us further afield. But I, th I think each side has, in fact, laid the intellectual groundwork for explaining a wide range of possible outcomes, situations we could be in, say, in 2010 or 2015 in the Middle East. So um, 
This is a project that was, say, say inspiration was born out of exasperation. Uh, it, it just didn't work. Uh, my, my, my initial foray into, into teasing out testable predictions from people really <laughs> failed in 1984 or 85. And I came to the conclusion that I'd have to be much more forceful. Uh, and that I'd, I would have to define, um, I, I would, instead of allowing people to use the kind of vague verbal quantifiers of uncertainty that people are most comfortable using, things like, well, it could happen, or it might happen, or possible, or it's very possible, or not very possible, get away from vague verbal quantifiers and get people to express their uncertainty on subjective probability scales, a, a critical prerequisite for getting some kind of semi-solid handle on the slippery concept of good judgment. So you get people to use subjective probability scales. And second, um, to, get, to define the futures in a way that is sufficiently specific and precise that we could tell after the fact who got what right without having to go back to the original <laughs> forecasters and ask them, well, what did you really mean by you know, a Polish Perón? Or what did you mean by some deterioration in relations? Or what did you mean by uh, white backlash in Pretoria? Uh, you know, all the, you know, the, kind, the kinds of phrases that you know, experts often, often come up with. Um, so the, the idea was in, 19, in 1988, I did my first major round of data collection. I did another major round of data collection in 1992. And everything I have to say today about the correlates of accuracy or good judgment in world politics uh, is based essentially on those two major rounds of data collection. So that's the way I, I frame the project for political scientists. The way I frame the project for psychologists is a little bit different. I, I, I frame it in terms of a big debate that's been going on in the psychological literature over the concept of rationality. And um, Actually, I want to turn to this now. Uh, sometimes called the great rationality debate. And it's a debate that was essentially inspired by the work of Kahneman and Tversky in the 1970s and the 1980s on judgmental biases and heuristics. And it, it tends to, uh, to polarize opinion somewhat among psychologists. Uh, there are people who are, we call them the doubters of the error and bias school of thought. These are people who argue that when serious individuals, when serious decision makers tackle serious or ecologically representative, as we like to call them, problems, all these alleged errors and biases in judgment and choice tend to vanish. So they're more or less hothouse laboratory flowers. And once people are in real world, serious people in real world situations where they can be taken advantage of if they screw it up, uh, then uh, people, people smarten up pretty fast. Uh, this is also a point of view that's quite influential in finance. Uh, although the, 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 the Kahnemanites, as I call them, the people who believe in error and bias, have, even, have made headway even there. And if you can make headway against the rational actor model in finance, that, that is, uh, that is a, an extraordinary intellectual achievement. Uh, but the, the proponents of error and bias uh, reply that, you know, not so fast. Uh, the, the, these, are, these aren't laboratory hothouse flowers that wither as soon as you put them out in the, in the, in the, the real world. Uh, people are hardwired to make certain types of mistakes over and over again. There are certain types of rules of thumb or heuristics that come very naturally to people given the way our memory is set up, given the way the mind works. And uh, it, it takes really very special circumstances to eliminate these kinds of effects. Now my own view, and it's, it's been a view that's evolved, I think, in the course of this project, is, is moderate skepticism. I, I think that the skeptics are right that some biases are attenuated when serious people try to tackle serious problems and have serious incentives to get it right. Um, and the, I think the skeptics are also right on another important point, and that is just because people are failing against one benchmark of rationality, they might be doing quite well against other benchmarks. 
there are, isn't just one set of benchmarks of rationality. Rationality turns out not to be a unitary construct. Accuracy turns out not to be a unitary construct. And um, it's very difficult to say, even when you try to pin down people as precisely as I've tried to pin them down, who exactly got what right or wrong. There, there, there's a large residual element of subjectivity and ambiguity. Uh, and I'm not optimistic it's ever going to be able to, I, I think we've succeeded in reducing it somewhat. But I think it's a question of whether you want to view the glass, glass half full or half empty. Um, so, but my, my middle ground position is that the skeptics make some legitimate points, but I think the error and bias school of thought uh, has identified some psychological processes that are remarkably robust. And in fact, we repeatedly find evidence for several of these processes in our project. Um, we, for example, we find systematic, not, not, not to give you too much of a, I, incidentally, ch the ch chapter three of the book was circulated, is that right, for this group? Is that true? There was, was any paper circulated in advance? No paper circulated, okay. <laughs> um, we do find some evidence for, 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 for several of the biases, the classic biases in the psychological literature, including overconfidence and belief perseverance and hindsight bias, three, three, the, the three biases that regularly reappear in the context of this project. Um, so how, how, do, how, how exactly does the project connect to the psychological debate over rationality? First, we're going to study serious people grappling with serious problems. Uh, second, we are going to replicate some of the classic lab biases. And third, we're going to discover something the people in the laboratory haven't, have partly discovered, but haven't discovered in as noticeable a way as we have, and that is the existence of very large individual differences in susceptibility to bias. And then finally, uh, we're going to discover something, and maybe political scientists won't be too surprised to learn, and how difficult it is to judge judgment in real world settings. And we're going to have to wrestle with something that philosophers who, who look at this call the principle of charity. Uh, the principle of charity essentially is when you see somebody making what seems to be a mistake, how hard do you look for alternative explanations that might rationalize the mistake? Now if you look, I'm not, it, it, what the philosophers essentially argue is that if you look hard enough, you can always find some way of rationalizing even but what would, on, on, the, on the surface, look like the most idiotic kinds of, ju kinds of judgments. Uh, so it's an interesting judgment call of how far do you go in looking for um, alternative, more generous explanations for apparent biases. Now the participants in this project, as I mentioned already just very briefly, there were, there were two major cohorts, one in 88, 89, the other in 92, 93. Uh, they're, by virtually any standard, uh, they're, 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 they have a great deal of expertise. Most of them have PhDs. Virtually all of them have postgraduate degrees of one form or another. A slight majority came from academia. A substantial group came from government. Another substantial group came from international organizations like the IMF and the World Bank, uh, RAND Corporation, even a few journalists. Average of 12.2 years of experience. And the, I think the most important part of this project, in a way, is, is, is the challenge of formulating the questions. And I'm not going to claim that my method of formulating these questions is the best or the only possible method. It's, it's a method I, I arrived at by the painful trial and error kind of process between 1984 and 1988. Um, the first requirement, if you want to assess good judgment in the sense of accuracy, and again, accuracy is just one of a number of possible conceptions of good judgment, but if you want to assess good judgment in the sense of accuracy, you need to have well-specified outcomes. And this involved passing something that uh, Danny Kahneman has called the clairvoyance test. The clairvoyance test is, uh, if I, I, I get a prediction from, from, say, Jeffrey Parker, and I uh, 
Rick, Rick is a genuine clairvoyant. I hand it over to Rick, and I say, Rick, is Jeffrey right or wrong? Now, if Rick is a genuine clairvoyant, of course, he can see with perfect 20-20 accuracy five, ten years ahead, so he can match up Jeffrey's prediction against the world that he sees five or ten years into the future and say it's right or wrong, and he doesn't need to return to Jeffrey with what exactly did you mean by this phrase or that phrase. So there's, a, there's, a, there's sufficient specificity there that uh, we, we can avoid that ex post wiggle room. Now, it turns out you can never reduce the ex post wiggle room to zero, but you can reduce it. And, and so it's a matter of degree, and I think that's the right, the right framework for looking at this. Um, also, the exclusiveness and exhaustiveness tests. Uh, this is essential if you want to use probability theory as a benchmark for assessing accuracy. Uh, you need to be able to carve the future into uh, exclusive and exhaustive subsets so the probabilities are supposed to sum to 1.0. So, for example, a question might be, central government debt will either hold between 35 and 40 percent of GDP, it'll fall below or rise above that range. Now, there are various tricks involved in how, do you, how exactly do you set the range between 35 and 40 or 30 and 40. I mean, they're, they're, the questions become easier or more difficult depending exactly on how you assess the, how you, how you, uh, how you calibrate these things. We were shooting for questions that were not impossibly difficult. That no, it would, you know, who's going to win the presidential election in 2020? Uh, no, nobody, nobody knows. Uh, but, uh, no, but closer up. Uh, will the Democrats or Republicans do better in the uh, 06 uh, midterm elections? Um, and place subjective probabilities on each set of possibilities identified in the question. Now, um, the, the data are complex, and there, there are many sources on, of them. Uh, we had experts make predictions in their role as experts. So if you knew a lot about the Soviet Union, we'd ask you naturally questions about the Soviet Union. But we might also ask you some questions about South Africa or Canada or Brazil. Uh, and in that case, you'd be making predictions in, a role, in your role as a, a dilettante. And we are there's a big literature in psychology on the conditions under which experts do better or don't do better than dilettantes. And that's so we were tying into this literature that exists on clinical judgment in psychology and also in medical schools. We had experts make shorter term and longer term predictions. One to three years were the uh, shorter term, and then five to ten years were the longer term predictions. We had them make predictions in what's sometimes called the geopolitical zone of stability versus the geopolitical zone of turbulence. So Western Europe, North America, and Japan were classified as being you know, Australia as, as in the zone of stability, whereas the zone of turbulence would be the Middle East and Africa and substantial parts of Asia, Latin America. And then. Um, we elicited predictions in three major domains. Domestic politics, who's going to be in charge of the executive legislative branches of government. Uh, government policy and economic performance. What are the, what, what are the government priorities as revealed by how, how especially, uh, an especially useful set of questions turned out to be spending priorities. Economic performance, the sorts of things that macroeconomists have traditionally looked at. And national security kinds of issues as well. And uh, entry into and exit from various treaties like the EU, the WTO, NATO. Um, okay, and so forth. So then there are various questions within each domain, and then finally there's a partitioning of the futures into, you know, things, there's going to be more of something, there's going to be less of something, there's going to be about the same amount. And often we're able to classify that as there's going to be, things are going to get better, things are going to get worse, things are going to stay about the same. Uh, although that latter one is not quite the same, it involves a value, value judgments on, what, on what's better or what's worse. Um, we use the technique that's been used rather extensively now uh, in the psychological literature on judgment decision making called probability scoring. And it's been used on a, on a lot of financial forecasters, used in medical diagnosis, uh, meteorology. The basic idea is this. And uh, ev even this is going to be controversial, although it, 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 it I think is defensible. You say, 
Well, we know something, something's got to happen. If you've defined the futures in, uh, into exclusive and exhaustive subsets, something's got to happen. One of, one, of, one of these futures has to occur. <laughs> and when, when one of those futures occurs, you code that as a 1. Okay? There's a 1 up there. And you can measure how much the probability deviates from 1. Pi 1 minus 1. And you can also measure how much the probabilities were assigned, what the probabilities were assigned to the possibilities that didn't occur, which now get zero. Right? So you're essentially measuring the deviation between prob subjective probabilities and reality, where reality is dummy coded, dichotomously coded as zero or one. Okay, that's the essential plan here, and you can decompose these probability scores into a in a number of possible ways. Um, right here. The, this is just a variability index. This just tells you how often good or bad outcomes occurred within the entire population. It does have nothing to do with the human judges per se. It's just a measure of the envir environmental variability. This is called calibration. This is called discrimination. And these are the two measures I really want to focus on the most um, in, the, in the talk today. Uh, calibration is a critical concept. Uh, you're well calibrated to the degree you assign over many predictions now. To the degree you assign over many predictions, subjective probabilities that correspond roughly to the objective frequency with which those outcomes occur in the reference population. So um, if you take all those predictions you assigned a value of 80% to, you said they're 8.8 .8 likely, those things should occur about 80% of the time in that category. And those uh, those uh, outcomes you assign a 90% probability to should occur 90%. When you assign a probability of 1.0, it, it should always occur. When you assign a subjective probability of zero, it should never occur. Such a subjective probability of zero is impossibility. Subjective probability of one is certainty. Right. And when you have three possible outcomes, the subjective probability of 0.33 is maximum uncertainty. Right. Now, now, of course, you know, the, the, those of you who are philosophically inclined will say, you know, subjective probabilities can only be conclusively refuted or falsified when people make judgments of zero or one. Otherwise, you can always say, you say, oh, I, I said this was 0.9 likely, it didn't happen. Well, unlikely things do sometimes happen, right? And very likely things sometimes fail to happen. So any probability that falls short of zero or one, you can always argue, well, we just happen to inhabit an unlikely universe. And in fact, experts do often argue some version of that. Um, not stated quite that baldly, but, 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 but you often hear variants of that, of that argument. Um, but the, the only way to get away out of this conundrum is through aggregation and through the law of large numbers by, by obtaining a lot of predictions and aggregating over a lot of people, a lot of different topics. So we're not in a position to make really precise statements about who was, which particular individuals or points of view were better than other individuals or points of view on a particular topic. But we're, what we're, we're addressing here is something of a broader kind of psychological or cognitive stylistic in, uh, interest. We're interested in what patterns of reasoning tend to be associated with better or worse performance over large numbers of judgments. So those of you who are hoping that you know, we're going to be able to deal a knockout blow to uh, re realists because they, got, they were wrong about X, Y, and Z, gonna have to, I'm going to have to disappoint you. If anything, the data are consistent with, the, with the, the Andy Warhol hypothesis, which is that everybody's entitled to his or her 15 minutes of fame. Uh, virtually every point of view at some point gets it right. Uh,
Okay, these are just the definitions of variability is unpredictability of the environment. Calibration is assigning subjective probabilities that correspond to objective frequencies. Right? When you say 70% likelihood, things happen about 70% of the time, 50%, about 50% of the time. Now, discrimination is something that is in tension with calibration. Um, you're, well, you're a highly discriminating forecaster to the degree you can do a better job than the base rate at assigning higher probabilities to things that happen than to things that don't happen. Now, what does that mean? It means, well, let's, let, let's say that change for the better occurs about 80% of the time in this particular time period. You could do pretty well. You'd be very well calibrated if you simply said 80% to everything. Right? It'd be like, like if, if you're predicting the weather in San Diego and you, you predict sunny and mild 95% uh, of the time, you're 95, you know, at the exception of this winter, <laughs> you, 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 you'd, you'd do very well. Um, now, that, 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 that falls short of most people's conception of what good judgment is, sim simply stating what the base rate is. But, it's, but you're, you're a highly discriminating forecaster to the degree you can do better than the base rate. Now, this is going to require you to go out on a limb. See, to be well calibrated, it's, it, you can often get a good calibration score simply by being a chicken and by sticking close to the midpoints of the scales, because things are occurring, you know, it's about status quo occurs about 50% of the time, the other two outcomes occur about 30, 20, 20% of the time. Um, so you can do pretty well uh, just by sticking very close to the, yes, the base rate. Uh, oh, well, I'm going backward here. These, these are the sources of subjective probability judgments, and 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 there are many thousands of uh, there are many thousands of subjective probability judgments when you get down to this level. But there are people are making predictions about who's going to be in charge, who's going to control the executive or legislative branch of government, uh, directions in government policy, directions in economic performance, national security policy, entry into, exit from treaties. Yes, precisely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I ran over. I ran over that. I ran over that pretty fast. Um, but it's, it's, it's essentially it's an aggregation exercise. This this, uh, this can only work as an aggregation exercise. But there are, there are, there are trade-offs between calibration and discrimination. If you want to if you want to do better than the base rate and get a good discrimination score as well as a good calibration score, you're going to have to go out on a limb. You're going to have to assign relatively extreme probabilities to some things. Right. So the pressure. So there's a tension here. Uh, there's, a, the low, uh, there's a low cognitive effort path to calibration, which is sort of to stick, make, make very moderate predictions in the middle range and don't, don't stray dramatically towards zero or one. Never call anything impossible. Never call anything sure thing. And then there's the, the but if you want to be highly discriminating, you're going to have to be willing to make these extreme probability judgments. You're going to have to be willing to go out close to zero or one. So there's a, there's a tension or a trade-off between calibration and discrimination. This, this illustrates the point graphically. Here you've got someone who's very well calibrated, but not, not, not very discriminating at all. So they never, stray, they never assign a subjective probability less than 0.4, and they never assign a subjective probability greater than 0.6. So we're perpetually in the hazy zone of maybe. <laughs> right? uh, sometimes with a, a, a bit of an inflection toward not, not maybe, but not that likely. <laughs> a little less, <laughs> a little less. <laughs> and sometimes with an inflection maybe, and just a little bit higher. Um, and, and you, but you see, they're well calibrated because there's a perfect correspondence between the subjective probabilities they're assigning and the frequency with which events occur in these probability categories. So you're, you have a combination 
of, of poor discrimination and good calibration, which is exactly what you'd expect when people are being, this is kind of the chicken hypothesis. People are fence sitters or, or chickens. Um, here you've got a combination of, 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 good, of, of good calibration and good discrimination. And you see they're, they're assigning subjective probabilities ranging from 0.1 all the way up to 0.9. You have a very good spread. Uh, virtually nobody looks, looks that good. And there's only one being whom theologians have postulated to exist that looks <laughs> this good. <laughs> and, and, th and this would be, this is omniscience. <laughs> this is what omniscience looks like. Whenever you think, you, you, whenever the, you, you only say one of two things. You say it's impossible or you say it's certain. And when you say it's impossible, it never happens. And when you say it's certain, it always happens. And of course, this is a purely hypothetical uh, pattern. Wait. Well, how well should you expect experts to perform in this kind of a situation? There, there are two major categories of psychological hypotheses I was interested in. Of course, there are lots of political ideas, too. I mean, it, 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 there, there are lots of people who occupy various points along the political spectrum or, very, or on very various theoretical continua or ideological continua in political science or elsewhere you know, have views that people who think like me Tend to, tend to have pretty good judgment, right? So if you're a realist or an institutionalist, or if you're a liberal or a conservative, you know, you're good, good for good judgment for you will tend to be identified with certain content patterns of thinking. I'm not looking at that at the moment. Uh, I'm looking more at, at, at the broader psychological perspective on it. Uh, and there are some psychologists who will, who will argue that um, you really shouldn't expect much from experts at all when they're, when, when they're confronting as radically indeterminate an environment as this. Uh, there are actually versions of this hypothesis also in, in the world of finance. Uh, the Wall Street Journal quite regularly pits uh, very well remunerated uh, stock pickers against blindfolded chimpanzees. And it's a competition that the experts are, are winning a little by, by not as large a margin as you'd expect given how much these guys are being paid. <laughs> uh, but they think they're ahead about uh, no, no, 70 to 45 or something like that. They've been running this every quarter for you know, a long time, like 111 quarters, I think. Uh, so radical skepticism essentially says don't expect much at all. And there, then there, there is another view, which, I, which for want of a better term I call meliorism, and that is that there are various paths to good judgment. And, you know, there are within political science, of course, there are these various, you know, it could be liberal or conservative or realist or institutionalist. Or it could be, you know, there, there, are all, there are all sorts of intellectual variations here, each of which people might believe would be associated with good judgment in various domains. And then you have various kinds of cognitive stylistic theories. So you have, um, there's, a, there's a theory, in, there's, a there's a class of variables in psychology uh, that are subsumed under what's co sometimes called open-mindedness, an open-mindedness factor uh, in, in the study of personality uh, involving need for structure and need for closure, um, which maps very nicely onto Isaiah Berlin's concept of hedgehogs and foxes. Right, a fox, uh, the hedgehog is, 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 is the intellectual who knows one big thing and tries to assimilate everything into that kind of architectonic framework, whereas the fox is someone who knows many little things and is continually improvising ad hoc tricks for coping, for coping with the world. Foxes tend to be eclectic and oppor intellectually opportunistic and take ideas wherever they can and patch together solutions and tend to be more tentative in their judgments, whereas hedgehogs tend to, tend to exhibit greater confidence and tend to be more... Uh, tend to be more intellect. They, they would think as, as more intellectually disciplined, more coherent uh, than the um, than their fox-like counterparts. Uh, now, so radical skepticism, you know, to return to that, would essentially say, don't expect the experts to outpredict themselves when they're playing the role of dilettantes. 
Don't expect the experts to do better than simple extrapolation algorithms, like you know, predict the most recent trend and push it into the future. And don't even expect them to do better than dart throwing chimpanzees. Uh, they're just, they're not going to do it. Uh, good judgment, in effect, is reducible to good luck. That's the, that's the strong form of that hypothesis. That's the hypothesis that you, you occasionally hear people advance. I, I think virtually nobody really believes that. Virtually nobody really believes that when, 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 cr when it's crunch time and you have to make a decision about whether to uh, uh, admit China to the WTO or whether to bomb Belgrade or whatever, that you, you, do, you do just as well flipping a coin uh, as by, by, by thinking it through. Vir uh, but that, that, that's the intellectual version of the, of the, of the, of the position. That's a strong for a form of radical skepticism. Uh, what you find here, here, here we're plotting calibration and discrimination against each other, and scores get better as you go out this way, okay? And each of these lines here represents a possible calibration discrimination trade-off. So they're kind of analogous to indifference curves. And what you find is that um, the human forecasters, this is a little too high, for, I don't have one of those little things. You see this right up there? <laughs> That, that little cluster up there it represents um, all human forecasters, experts, and dilettantes. Um, you've got the chimpanzee and the extrapolation algorithms down along here. Uh, this is actually simple base rate extrapolation. Um, and what, what you see is that humans. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Taking video on me here. Humans can do better than uh, the very simple kinds of extrapolation algorithms. Humans can't do better than, than case-specific extrapolation algorithms. So you see that one there? <laughs> and, you see, <laughs> and you see that one there. Th th those are the two very simple algorithms that are doing better than human beings. Okay? And they're basically e e expansive and a cautious case-specific extrapolation. Um, all that means is you, you, you take whatever the most recent trend for that country was at a particular moment and you assign either aggressively high probabilities or moderately high probabilities to it. And uh, that, that, act, that actually works, works, works pretty well. Um, human, humans do do better than, than, than some of the others down here. Uh, the, these, are, these are located on lower probability calibration trade-off functions. Um, but overall, the, it's, it's a moderately discouraging picture. I guess, for the defense <laughs> of humanity. Uh, now, there are many forms of meliorism, as I, as I alluded to earlier. You, you know, you, there, there is with the usual way of thinking about meliorism is whether you're a good judge or not depends on, on, what, on what you think, on the content of your belief system, whether you're liberal or conservative or what brand of blend of realism or institutionalism or whatever you've, you've, ach you've achieved intellectually. Um, but the, fa the, the, the fact of the matter is when you look at content, there, there's deep disagreement on which content cognitive formulas are going to promote good judgment or inhibit good judgment. Um, right, so you've got at least three or four basic dimensions of content here. Um, here, is, uh, here are some items that we got most, we got as many people to respond to as possible, uh, and we factor analyzed these items. And there were three basic content dimensions of belief systems that came out. There was a classic left-right dimension, self-identification with political left and right, uh, downplaying negative environmental externalities of free trade, uh, downplaying negative effects of markets on social equality, um, higher scores pushing you toward in, in, a, in, a more, in a more conservative direction. 
You've got an institutionalist realist dimension. Um, it's a mistake to dismiss international institutions as totally subordinate to the whims of great power versus balance of power politics will remain the dominant regulating principle. You see those items working in opposite directions there on the realist institutionalist dimension. And then you've got the doomster boomster uh, dimension, the people who uh, think that um, the world is moving uh, toward uh, a, a time when people are going to live longer, we're <coughs> going to be healthier, we're going to be happier, we're going to be smarter, we're going to be richer. <laughs> It's essentially an upward trajectory, uh, whereas there are other people who emphasize the precariousness uh, of current trends and, uh, the and uh, are pessimistic about issues of sustainability. Um, so there's looking at the, okay, so we get scores for each each forecaster on each of these three dimensions, and then we want to see whether or not. Um, People on the left or right get better calibration scores, better discrimination scores. And what you see here, essentially, is a, is a bit of a mess. Uh, there's a, there is a tendency for moderates to do, to do somewhat better. Um, so how to, how to put this? Um, first, focus on calibration, which is this kind of this shade of brown here. And you see that lower calibration scores are going to be better on this graph. Uh, and lower, you get lower here, you get lower here and you get lower here. So there is a trend for moderates on each of these three dimensions to do somewhat better. And they're doing better not at a price in discrimination. That says resolution. It should say discrimination. Um, well, they're, they're synonyms in the literature. Uh, you, you can see that they, the, the, the moderates aren't doing better than the extremists on each dimension simply because they're chickens. If they were, they would have worse discrimination scores. But in fact, they have somewhat better discrimination scores. Discrimination is better here, better here, and better here. So moderates are doing better on both dimensions. They're dominating people at the extremes. They're better calibrated and they're more discriminating. The other way of looking for, better, for good judgment is what we psychologists call cognitive style. Or to use Isaiah Berlin's distinction between hedgehogs and foxes, the hedgehog knows many things, but the, but the uh, uh, fox Excuse me. The hedgehog knows one. The fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. Um, here, I'll just let you. These are Sir Isaiah Berlin's definitions of the ideal type hedgehog, relating everything to a single vision, one system. And the ideal type fox. Now this is going to be, I think, um, the most um, I'm hesitating, looking for the word here. Uh, this, this is going to be, I think, the most important finding in the book. Uh, <laughs> it is, um, it's the power of cognitive style to predict accuracy. It, it, it is when, when you when you think on it. It, it, it is, it's surprising that the effects are as substantial as they are. Uh, first, however, we have to measure cognitive style. And we measure cognitive style with these items. Um, the, first, the very first item is whether you think of yourself as a fox or a hedgehog, uh, which is, an, and you can see that has a high factor loading, which is useful. Uh, but you can also see there are other items that are, that are marking off the foxes from the hedgehogs. There's another factor as well, which we've labeled decisiveness, which I'm not going to talk about right now because it confused things too much. Um, 
But foxes and hedgehogs come to these exercises with really quite different philosophies, different, if you will, epistemologies. Um, the foxes have a, have a certain characteristic recipe for avoiding big mistakes. Uh, one is they, 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 many of them quite self-consciously cultivate a capacity for dialectical reasoning. They think of good judgment as an integratively complex balancing act. On the one hand, there are microfactors. On the other hand, there are macrofactors. Microfactors become relevant under these, con under these sorts of macro conditions. Um, they're also very sensitive to the need to balance what, what's sometimes called ideographic versus nomothetic types of arguments. So for example, it's, it, I, I don't know how many times I've heard predictions that the, the Saudi Arabian regime is, is, is fated to fall. Uh, the, the, those, those, those predictions appear and appear, and, and, and someday, undoubtedly, they will be right. Uh, <laughs> And those who offer the, I was just off on timing defense, will be vindicated. Um, <laughs> but you, 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 it's very possible for, 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 for good writers uh, and, and, and very thoughtful observers to, to build really powerful cases for the imminent collapse of regimes, whether North Korea or Saudi Arabia or what have you. And undoubtedly, there were, they will at some point be right. But regime collapse is a relatively rare event. In any given year, regime collapse, or any given two or three years, regime collapse is a rare event. So when you're assigning a very high subjective probability to regime collapse, you're predicting a low-frequency event. Right? And that's a good way, as the bookies in Las Vegas would tell you, to get taken to the cleaners. Um, tolerance for dissonance ambiguity is another thing that foxes tend to emphasize. Uh, and a, a tendency to appreciate that, especially in the short term, there are powerful equilibrium forces that make predicting some variant of the status quo the better bet. Uh, regimes have a lot of resources at their disposal, so even if they're really rickety, and <laughs> uh, they, they, they can often manage to hold on for very long periods of time. The hedgehog recipe for success is, is really quite different. Uh, you see an unapologetic preference for parsimony and hypothetical deductive reasoning. Uh, you see a tendency to put a lot of faith in longer-term forecasts grounded in sound theory and good assessments of antecedent conditions. Oops. And finally, you have a tendency to emphasize the need to keep your eye on the ball. Focus on fundamentals. Don't get distracted by the headlines. Uh, don't, 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 don't pay attention to the latest wave of terrorism in Iraq. You know, keep, keep your eye on the longer term, the fundamental trends that are going on. Uh, good judges have, that, have the ability to abstract out uh, and, 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 and stick with the fundamentals, ev even when the fundamentals become very unpopular. Now, what you find when you plot the relative accuracy of foxes and hedgehogs on, uh, on calibration, where the scores going in this direction are better and scores going up are better, what you find is uh, a really quite remarkable spread in performance. You've got foxes making long <coughs> use, use this. Uh, foxes making long-term predictions, foxes making short-term predictions, hedgehogs making short-term predictions hedgehogs making long-term predictions, the mindless competition, Berkeley, Ber Ber these are Berkeley undergraduates over here, really, really <laughs> at the bottom. <laughs> and these up here, up here, so far out in fact, they, they can't even be put on this graph, but they're up, up around here, uh, would be the performance of more formal autoregressive uh, and regression models. So this is, these are very simple extrapolation algorithms. When, when, you, when, you, when, you, up the, when you up the ante, you can fit people up against more sophisticated statistical competition, and they will do substantially worse than that. Um, but it's, what, what's, what's very interesting here is, is, is the degree to which um, 
certain types of head, there are certain conditions under which hedgehogs take a big performance hit. And what are those conditions? Interestingly enough, the very worst performers among experts tend to be hedgehogs making long-term predictions within the domains of their expertise. <laughs> now, what kind of a theoretical story can we tell here? It's a, <laughs> it's a story essentially in which hedgehogs are people who, by virtue of their cognitive style, can build up a lot of intellectual momentum for a particular outcome. They can generate lots of arguments for and when they have expertise, that means they have a large store of arguments they can generate. So a hedgehog dilettante is not all that dangerous because a hedgehog dilettante they can't build up the necessary intellectual momentum because there's not the necessary amount of knowledge stored. But a hedgehog with, with expertise in the domain really can build up a substantial amount of momentum. The other thing is a long-term long versus short-term. Longer, longer term, it's easier to project your ideological or theoretical preferences deeper into the future than it is in the short term. The short-term future feels more constrained by current reality. Going further out, it's easier to configure the vague. You have more ambiguity, more vagueness, rather analogous to a psychological projective test. The long-term future is more Rorschach-like, more like an inkblot test. Um, so hedgehogs making long, beware of hedgehogs making long-term predictions within the domains of their expertise. Uh, it, now, this group here, there's a fourth thing going on. It's not only hedgehogs making long-term predictions within the domain of their expertise, it's hedgehog extremists. So if, you are, if, you, if, you, if they fall toward the extremes on those dimensions of left, right, doomster, boomster, realist, institutionalist, the extremists tend to do worse. So it's a combination of ideological extremism, a hedgehog cognitive style, a lot of knowledge, and um, ambiguity, making long-term predictions in, in, uh, so you're not, wait, you're not anchored down much by, by contemporary realities. Uh, how much more time do I have? Okay. Um, this, is, uh, this, this graph illustrates that, that, that very point. Um, this is just plotting calibration, but you can see almost looks like an obscene gesture. Uh, <laughs> um, these, are, these are hedgehog extremists making long-term predictions in the domain of their expertise. A long-term expert hedgehog extremist. And uh, that's, that, that's where you get, um, the, well, I, I keep shifting calibration around on you. Sometimes I reflect the scores and I do one minus calibration. Sometimes I do calibration. When I just do raw <laughs> calibration, higher scores are bad because that means there are bigger gaps between probability and reality. So when you get, you're, you're approaching um, a calibration score of 0.05, for example, the average gap between your subjective probability predictions and reality is going to be around 0.25. So that means there are pretty large gaps between probability and reality. Uh, when, when, you, when you're down around here, the average gap is about 0.1. So you're off by about 10%. Here, you're off about 25% up there. So that'll give you a sense for the magnitude of the deviations between subjective probabilities and realities that are being captured by this abstract variable called, called calibration. These are just calibration curves showing uh, how subjective probabilities relate to objective frequency when you plot across the entire scale. And you can again see hedgehogs making long-term predictions in the domain of their expertise stray furthest from this diagonal. The diagonal, as you may recall, represents perfect calibration, which is perfect correspondence. So the closer you are to that diagonal, the closer you are to perfect calibration. And again, you see across the entire scale, you can see hedgehogs straying, straying further. Now, there's, there are a lot, there's a lot of argument about why exactly uh, foxes are outperforming hedgehogs. 
And there are some very flattering interpretations, and there are some not so flattering interpretations for the foxes. The most flattering interpretation is the foxes won fair and square. Uh, they deserve credit uh, for having more flexible, self-critical styles of thinking. And uh, there's also some process evidence to support that. So for example, we, 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 we obtained from many forecasters the explanations they offered for um, one major set of predictions within the domain of their expertise, one major set of predictions outside the domain of their expertise. And we coded those explanations for how cognitively differentiated and integrated they were. And foxes <coughs> tended to offer more on the one hand, on the other hand, balancing kinds of predictions. Whereas hedgehogs tended to offer th the same number of arguments, but the arguments were more evaluatively lopsided favoring one future more disproportionately, as of course you'd expect if they were making more extreme predictions. Uh, but so the, the argument is they're, they're paying a price for that particular style of thinking. And that particular style of thinking is one that leads them astray because the world is a messy world. We live in a, in a causally complex, messy world in which uh, good guys sometimes do bad things, and bad guys sometimes do good things, and regimes that we like. But, but you, you, know, you see where I'm going with this. It's a, it's a dissonant world. It's a highly probabilistic world. So people who are careful about not assigning high, extreme probabilities and people who are willing to entertain dissonant possibilities have uh, some comparative advantage in, 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 the, in the forecasting realm. The less flattering interpretations, there are at least three of them, um, one of them is that um, the hedgehogs just have um, different error avoidance priorities. And this proves to be a very difficult one to eliminate. Um, you, might be perfect, you might perfectly rationally decide that um, you're willing to tolerate a lot of false alarms in order to avoid missing something. I mean, in the post-9-11 world, what is an airport? I mean, an airport is essentially a system that's willing to tolerate vast numbers of false alarms to avoid a miss. Right, and that's why we have, you know, grandmother, we're checking every grandmother from North Dakota out really carefully. Um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a great deal of institutionalized tolerance for false alarms in a system like that. More informally, you might say, well, hed hedgehogs are reasoning that it's, 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 it's better to false alarm on, on change. Maybe change for the worse. For some hedgehogs, maybe better to false alarm even on change for the better. But they're, they're, they're making the case that not all mistakes are born equal and that our probability scoring system needs to take that into account. Now, there are mathematical, quite simple mathematical ways of doing that. And you'll see, we, in order to, get, to allow the hedgehogs to catch up to the foxes, we have to make some pretty extreme adjustments, as we'll see, see in a minute. Another possibility is there's an uneven playing field, that the hedgehogs may be specializing in more inherently unpredictable regions of the world. Uh, and the other possibility is, of course, that the foxes were just chickens. Uh, although, since the foxes are also doing better on discrimination, that's a very hard hypothesis to sustain even now. Um, not just different error avoidance priorities. Um, it's hard to rescue hedgehogs through value adjustments because they're essentially making more errors of all types. They're both over-predicting and under-predicting change for the better and change for the worse. Now, how could that be the case? It could be the case if hedgehogs are more likely to be extremists and, and, and extreme boomsters and extreme doomsters are overrepresented in the hedgehog population. So hedgehogs may be making both patterns of mistakes. And because they have this ideological tendency to take an argument and run with it and build up a lot of intellectual momentum for it, it causes this, this um, inflation of error. Um, but it's, it's, it's very hard through any kind of simple across-the-board statistical adjustment to bring foxes up to, or excuse me, to bring hedgehogs up to parity, performance parity with, with foxes uh, when they are, in fact, making both types of mistakes more often. Um, they're also doing a lot of... Um, the extreme underprediction and extreme overprediction. 
So hedgehogs, especially hedgehog extremists now, um, made the mistake of um, calling things impossible that later happen roughly 14% of the time. And foxes made that same mistake about 4% of the time. And hedgehogs made the mistake, well, called a lot more things impossible. So you had both things working against them. And you also have extreme overprediction, declaring things inevitable that never happen. Hedgehogs made this mistake about 25% of the time out of about 1,400 predictions. Foxes in about 12.5% of the time for 581 predictions. So it's very difficult uh, to produce catch-up. Uh, if you want to produce catch-up, um, you need to uh, punish missing change in any form, change for the better or change for the worse, roughly seven times more severely. So if you, if you, if you, if you adopt the following intellectual position, if you say, I think that failing to identify change, and I don't care about the direction of the change, whether it's for better or worse, I, if, I, you, you, if you say that failure to identify change, for either better or for worse, is seven times more, um, is seven times more serious a mistake than false alarming on change. If you say that, uh, you can produce catch-up. You can produce, you can, you readjust the probability scores so that hedgehogs and foxes, there's essentially no significant difference in their performance. But it's not so much the, the, the I think the, the thing that sticks for me in, in, in this particular argument is that you have to argue, you don't care about the direction of the change. I could see somebody arguing, look, identi especially identifying change for the worse, because it, it, it implies you need to take various forms of preparatory action. High tolerance for false alarming on change for the worse, I can understand, but it's, very, it's extremely difficult to get any kind of catch-up with just with that kind of correction. You need, to have a, you need to have a generic change correction because what hedgehogs are doing is they're over-predicting change. And, we, and then our population of events, even though you know, there were some really major traumatic things happening in, in, the, in, in world politics between 1988 and, and 2002, uh, the, um, what was I going with that? The, I lost that train of thought. Well, at any, at any rate, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty dramatic uh, correction you have to introduce, and it's rather implausible that you would only care, you, you, you would care about change per se rather than direction of the change. Oh, I know. Uh, the thing I was going to say was that within that population of events, the status quo, variants of the status quo, would occur about 51% of the time. Change occurs about 29% of the time, and ch a change for the better occurs about 29%, change for the worse about 20% of the time. So you essentially have um, a situation where you pay a, you pay a rather steep price if you're over predicting change in that situation. <coughs> okay, th this just illustrates you get you get you get catch up over over here. <laughs> where you that 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 that, in, that intersection point means you're 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 judging uh, false alarming to be seven times less serious than missing change in any form. It's the status quo versus either up or down change. Up or down simply means change for the better or change for the worse. Um, not just cowardice. Well, I think we've already covered that because the, the foxes do um, better with discrimination as well. So I think we can go over that one pretty quickly. Um, and not just an unfair playing field. Well, it turns out that foxes and hedgehogs really don't specialize in all that different domains. Uh, there is a slight tendency for the hedgehog domain to be a little bit more unpredictable, have higher variance. But it's 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 a it's a relatively small effect, and when you make statistical adjustments for that, it really doesn't 
doesn't matter very much. So I think we have multiple grounds for favoring the view that foxes are doing better than hedgehogs uh, because their cognitive style confers a competitive advantage uh, in understanding a world that's highly probabilistic and full of dissonance. And that's, that's, that's the essential argument I want to make. And I can keep going longer, but I think we probably have time for questions. Those numbers were skewed because the hedgehogs were, were using the extremes much more than the foxes were. 
but no, actually what we're doing with the hedgehogs and foxes here is there, there, there are different ways of breaking down the data. You can analyze it as a continuum using regression, or you can break it down into quartiles and where you lose some data, but you get some or some simple, there's some presentational advantages in doing it that way. I, I was breaking it down by quartiles. Well, just because it seems that the nature of political process would tend to favor, favor hedgehogs getting themselves into institutionalized and influential positions. That is, you may not have the advantage in expert judgment, but you have the advantage of rhetorical force. You have a hedgehog has a strong story to sell. Does that? There, 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 there's, there's a good deal of evidence in social psychology and organizational behavior to support that idea that um, people who make unequivocal confident statements buttressed by, buttressed by mutually supporting arguments come across as more decisive, having greater leadership potential. Uh, I think that's very true in the business world. world. Um, and I, I think it is substantially true in the political world as well. In fact, a lot of people were, were arguing that the 2004 election was essentially a competition in cognitive styles, competing cognitive style, Jerry having this more nuanced, integratively complex style, which having this more decisive, integratively simple style. And um, the argument being, especially under conditions of threat, there's a preference for, for, the, for the worst style. Um, I, I think on balance, that's right. I, I, don't, I don't think it's always going to work out that way. But I, 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 think, I, I think there are clearly some boundary conditions on it. Um, and at some point, people who don't change their mind don't look decisive, they look big-headed. And that, of course, and sometimes people who do change their minds don't look wishy-washy, they look awful. Uh, it's a question of how, who succeeds in, in putting the, the preferred political spin on the same cognitive <coughs> pattern. Yes. Do, you, do you have a sense of who is more likely to be a hedgehog and who is more likely to be a fox? Yeah, given the, the, the categories that they should have among academics, experts, uh, you thought at all? Like, not much of a correlation. I mean, some, some, some people thought, for example, that economists might be more likely to be hedgehogs, for example, than, than, than Soviet more, more eclectic political scientists. Like, no, there, 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 there was not a disciplinary one. I don't think it was related to discipline. I don't think it was related to years of experience in the field. I don't think it was related to whether or not you were in academia. Um, in fact, there's only, there was only one of the life history background variables that had some predictive power. And this is, again, ironic. I guess it ties into your point. Right? We, 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 we work, so some of these people you know, work, 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 work fairly anonymous studies, but some of them are relatively high profile and have Google accounts. <laughs> so you, you can actually measure what their, their, their Google accounts are. And a higher Google account is associated with worse coverage. <laughs> so I guess I can take that as evidence of your hypothesis. <laughs> and in fact, it's also associated with more reported contact with media. Uh, so, but there again, what's, 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 what's the nature of the causal loop? I mean, is it that, that hedgehogs seek out these media opportunities because they want to spread their memes, so to speak? <laughs> or is it that uh, the media is attracted to the hedgehogs because they present a more a better soundbite package? Or, Probably reciprocal causation. What about liberal conservative? You mentioned it didn't correlate with discipline, didn't correlate with a lot of things, but you didn't mention whether it did or did not correlate with yeah. liberal conservative. Yeah, there's been a big argument actually among psychologists about how cognitive style relates to political ideology, and there was a controversial cycle and meta analysis 
uh, showing that um, conservatives are more likely to be higher in need for structure. And I've, I've actually done some work earlier uh, that it, it is offer, offered some support for that idea as well, and where higher need for structure means more hedgehogish in this context. Um, in this study, uh, I, I think maybe, maybe it's, it's because of the nature of the political range we had. Uh, it, uh, cognitive style, as, as defined by the hedgehog box scale, uh, was related to moderation. It wasn't related, and, and, and so moderation extremism was related to, not, not enormously, but around 0.24 to 5. And, and moderates did better, and foxes did better, and moderate foxes did especially well, and hedgehog extremists did especially poorly. Um, so it was a combination of, of um, the ideological content and cognitive style that produced the, the real performance outliers on that graph. But, it, it, but we didn't find support for the, the psych bulletin argument that uh, it, there's something called rigidity of the right hypothesis um, in this context. I, I think what's going on there, why that debate is not, not all that useful, is it, it, it is highly sample specific. It depends on how, how wide an ideological range you have within your participant pool. And I, I, I think we had a pretty, pretty I, I think we had people who were Marxist or libertarians. We had an ideologically diverse group, and it was intentionally so. Uh, yeah. is, is cognitive style gender? Um, well, this is a largely male sample, and I, I think this is about at least four to one male. Um, is, it, is it gendered? Again, you would have to refer back to the general literature, and I think the answer is no. Uh, you, you, you might imagine, I mean, the gender stereotypes would suggest that women might be a little bit more uh, tolerant of ambiguity and so forth. Um, there's not a lot of support for that in the cognitive style And it's the same statement that wasn't until 1916 or so that the random patient going to the random doctor with a random illness stood to benefit from the encounter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's no longer the case. So in both cases, the doctors were the hedgehogs, and before 1916, they were probably better off to go to a Christian science reader or a from chimpanzee. <laughs> Although they knew a lot about stuff, they knew the wrong stuff. So the implication is that the hedgehogs do badly not because uh, they um, uh, know only one thing, but the one thing they know is wrong. <laughs> Before 1960, they didn't know, for example, that they saw the germs of the essential, so they put in the position they brought the germs and the other patients leave, so you're better off to see the chimpanzee. But after that, they did learn. So the point is that what you need is the hedgehogs where the theory is true, uh, and then you're in good shape. And then right. the gun foxes really lose. No, and that, that, that's, that's a really good point. And, and when you look at the hedgehogs, who are the, the, the worst performing hedgehogs are in fact doing slightly worse than chains, which is really bad. So you're, you're really, really depressing the accuracy in, 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 in a pretty profound way. The best performing foxes are not doing that spectacularly well. So it's more a question of well, what is it about the fox cognitive style that allows them to avoid the really big mistakes that are driving the accuracy of your hedgehog coddling way down? And I think the argument is it's essentially like some kind of dilution process going on. There, there, there may be a number of quite fundamentally wrong ideas circulating out there, but they may be somewhat offsetting each other, and the more likely you are to use them, to use multiple ideas, qualify them, the more likely you are to protect them. The foxes might not be doing very well, but they're not doing any harm. Right. Well, the theorists may be doing active harm. I think that's kind of an implausible interpretation of the <laughs> 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 In the larger scheme of things, one might argue that expert judgments are not totally independent. Uh, of the world that we're making judgments about. After all, decision makers and foreign policy establishments are themselves experts and so on, and, and they help create over time 
the kinds of changes that take place. And it may be that your particular experts weren't decision makers, but they exemplify ways of thinking, substantive ways of thinking, um, that are presumably affecting the world. And so, in a sense, expert judgments in the, in the large sense are self-fulfilling prophecies to some extent. And so I guess I'm wondering whether this is an, an endogeneity problem of a certain kind, and have you thought about this, and, and is it a problem of any kind? Very interesting question. Um, the vast majority of people I was looking at were not in policy-making roles. Uh, they were in various kinds of advisory roles, with the partial exception of some of the uh, people who were making decisions about loans, international loans. Um, I think we have to be very careful about how we approach the self-fulfilling prophecy argument. Uh, and I think we have to take it on a case-by-case -case sort of basis. If, if there were some systematic self-fulfilling prophecies at work, one would suppose that those intellectual points of view that are most clearly being operationalized or instantiated in policy should be, getting, should be associated with higher scores. So I, I, I think we, we, we need to specify the self-fulfilling hypothesis self-fulfilling prophecy hypothesis with greater precision, and I think it would be testable in that way. I've never, I, I, there, there, there's such a cacophony of points of view here, and the level of aggregation is so high that I'm skeptical that that argument will work, but I can't rule it out a priori, and I think a more refined version of the hypothesis might be worth, worth looking at. This is a slightly different um, take, maybe on that similar last question. Um, but first of all, I want to say I'm very happy I'm not in the prediction business. The law, we construct a future, we don't have to predict it. So but the, uh, uh, not very well known, but um, how do you control for the impact of hedgehog ideas on decision making? Not that the hedgehogs aren't decision makers themselves, but if they do have, as Dory said, this great story, that will influence the decision makers and they will adjust for inflation or they will change their policies in the Saudi Arabian regime so that they don't fall because they've heard this persuasive explanation from the hedgehog. And so therefore hedgehogs will not have a greater um, predictive impact because the certainly the changes will, exactly, yeah. will, will be modified well, by their influential yeah. role. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say what the exact mix of self-fulfilling and self-negating prophecies might be in this context. And again, without, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can certainly imagine that intelligence analysts kind of going to the administration and saying, look, you know, we think the Saudi regime is, is ripe for falling and, unless, and then having some action implications, which the, the administration proceeds to uh, coordinate with the Saudis and thereby preempting that future. I mean, that, 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 that could happen. Um, you do have to have some kind of control for the impact of the hedgehog ideas on changing the future, right? We do, yeah. Uh, I, I, I give, the point I would emphasize is that there are so many different entities here and there are so many different types of outcomes we're looking at that although I, you, you, you probably could pinpoint some very specific self, you, what you need to do is pinpoint, is advance a priori <coughs> some very specific self-negating or self-fulfilling prophecy hypotheses and we could see whether or not we could find some, some kind of evidence for them. Uh, but stated in the abstract, it's very hard to, hard to deal with that argument. Um, I, I, I'm wondering, I guess, how you get to be classified as a hedgehog or as a fox. 
so, the scale back there? Well, I mean, just what, what intuitively what it's about. I mean, early on in the talk, you, you, you started talking about different models of rationality and whether it was a unitary conception mm. of rationality. And suppose you had this view that there isn't, that in different exercises you come off as hedgehogs and different mm. exercises you come off as a fox. Um, how, how do I, I, that's when I ask, who gets, how do you classify here? Is it, well, that's a, that's a great point. And, and the, 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 the book actually has eight chapters, and there are various other. The, the chapter three, which is the one I thought I circulated, actually, is the one that deals with the hedgehog fox issue and <coughs> judgmental accuracy as a criteria for good judgment. Um, what psychologists like to do is they like to argue, well, there, there are really two broad categories of criteria for good judgment. Uh, they, they say there are correspondence criteria and coherence criteria. And correspondence criteria are empirical or accuracy criteria which could be variously defined. This is just one instance of that. And then there are coherence criteria. That is, do, do, you, do, do, you, do, are, do your mental processes uh, conform to some logical or rational baseline of inference? So do you think like a good Bayesian? Uh, or do, 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 do your thought processes conform to basic axioms of probability theory? Um, now Rick and I did some work in Korea a few years ago where we uh, used what's called an unpacking manipulation. Uh, where um, it's a curious effect in psychological literature where you, you, people find more support for possible futures the more finely you break the possibilities down. So you find more support for um, Microsoft stock going down below $35 if you break the possibilities down into uh, between 35 and 25 and lower than 25. Uh, in, in essence, what's happening there is the likelihood of the subsets exceeds the likelihood of the whole. And that's what that called sub-attitude. <coughs> the whole is less than the sum of the parts. Now, this is clearly from a logical point of view a mistake. It actually is a mistake that foxes in my data are somewhat more susceptible to make because they're, they're somewhat, I think they're somewhat more imaginative and they find more support for a wider range of... They're, they're less intellectually controlled. Hedgehogs tend to be more dismissive of certain possibilities. Um, so it's easier to leave foxes down the primrose path sometimes. Um, so that would be an example of a, of a rationality standard where the hedgehogs do better. Mm -hmm. uh, hedgehogs do worse on the major coherence standard, which is uh, really the, other, the second version of this talk, which deals with Bayesian belief updating. Uh, when, when, when hedgehogs are less willing to change their minds when they lose reputational deaths. Um, so not, not only are they overconfident in the first place, they're less willing to change their minds later on and by, by offering various types of belief system defenses. Uh, the more likely to argue, among other things, that, well, X didn't happen, but it will eventually, off on timing. Or X didn't happen, but it soon will. Uh, X didn't happen, but it, but it almost happened. Close call counterfactual. X didn't happen, but it soon will, off on timing. Um, and very, there, are, there, are other four, there are four other belief system defenses that are more likely to, to offer. Um, so if, you are willing to, if you're willing to make the assumption that um, a good Bayesian would honor reputational bets, uh, and you know there are, there's some room for argument in the implementation of that. Uh, but if you want to make that assumption, there you have hedgehogs falling short on a major coherence standard, and it's a coherence standard that is functionally interrelated with the, co the correspondence standard. Because if you're, if you're if if you're incorrectly unwilling to change your mind when you get it wrong, that sets you up for making more mistakes in the future still. Right? So it becomes a kind of self-reinforcing circle. Um, overconfidence ex ante, bad belief updating ex post, reinforce each other. 
I guess I'm wondering what the literature says about whether people value being right when they're making a prediction or predicting something that nobody else has predicted. Oh, what a good question. That's a really interesting question. Well, what kind of a game are we playing here? Um, yeah. Um, what's, well, what, what's, what, is, is it all that interesting? If you, if you, if you think about it as a, as a kind of a conversation going on between reasonable observers of the current scene, uh, does it make a lot of sense to say, you know, the status quo is really likely to that's a less interesting conversational gambit than, than, than proposing that either dramatic change or the better dramatic change or the worse is going to happen. Uh, so you, you're certainly more likely to attract attention to you. It's more intellectually daring. It's more intellectually ambitious. Uh, all those things are true. The, 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 I, I guess, I guess what the argument would be, would, would, would foxes be more boring dinner companions? <laughs> <laughs> yes? Just following up on that, I'd be willing to bet that if you uh, followed up on the what Google score, that you find uh, that people with high Google scores somewhere, or some, at some point or points, make dairy predictions that prove accurate. And so, you know, it's like uh, the pigeons that, that peck more often when they get the seed occasionally instead of with every peck. Yeah. By having a correct prediction, people keep coming back to them, <laughs> even though that prediction was outlandish. It's it just score. Yeah. They score. They were wrong the next nine times. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and in fact, if you, if, you, if you go back to those numbers where I was talking about the, the tendency of hedgehogs to make more extreme predictions, like zero and one, you can think of that, if you use a baseball analogy, that's like hitting for a home run. <coughs> Swinging really hard. <laughs> um, you're, putting a lot of, you're putting a substantial amount of credibility on the line. And hedgehogs are doing it substantially more often. And they're making substantially more mistakes. But they're doing it enough more often that they're also getting more home runs. They're all, they're, 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 they, when they're assigning zero, more things are not happening. They're, they're assigning zero sufficiently more often that they are arguably being reinforced for that. Socially reinforced. Uh, and they're, and they're, they're swinging for one the same way. Uh, so, so hits and correct projections between one and zero um, would be uh, socially reinforced and would could, could quite plausibly produce that dynamic. I mean, there are lots of famous stories of you know, particular individuals who were right at time one and then fell off the train later on. Um, I guess in the, in the Sovietology field, the first name that might come to mind would be Jerry Huff. I, I don't know. I, I'm not them. <laughs> That's right. This is being broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I want to uh, thank Phil very much for coming back to Columbus. And uh, he will be here this afternoon. And I guess the early moderation is on.